friends, welcome back to the Film Alchemist Podcast, the show where we look at movies we love, break them apart, to find out what gives them their magic. I'm your host, Josh Griffey, joined as always by my number one fan and hobbling expert and co-host, Alex Dandino. Oh, that's cock duty right there. That was scary. All right, guys, as always, if you love the show, please take a second and leave us a rating and review, especially if you find us on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out enormously. Uh, We're on all the social media you're on. We love it when you guys get a hold of us and tell us (laughs) movies you'd love to hear covered, Uh, themes, guest host, anything like that, filmalchemistpod at gmail.com. You can reach us there, too. Uh, And now... For a while, if you want to see the faces behind these sultry, manly voices, uh, you can do that at Nerd Alchemist. That's our YouTube channel. Uh, we're working all the time to come up with new content to put there, uh, and hopefully we'll start implementing some of that soon. Uh, especially by summer, we have some new projects we're going to be rolling out. So uh, go subscribe to the channel over there and join the fun. All right. As those of you who listen every episode know, the pod has just rehabilitated itself from being a madman. That was our first half of the month theme. The pod was a madman. Fantastic group of films. But I'm actually equally as excited about this theme. For the second half of the month, the pod is held captive. Right? So these are movies where we've been taken and held against our will. But and not boy, taken. we're not happy about it. Yeah, not taken though. That's not on the list. Well, that would have been a good example of something. Because he's not really, like, confined. He's kind of walking he's around karate taken. kicking and He's shit. trying to find the Taken. Yeah. this These are movies that have an awful lot of captivity in them, right? Less about the hunting someone who's captive and more about the captivity. Uh, so today we're starting with what I think would probably be most people's first film in mind when you talk about being held captive. Misery. Alex, when was the last time you had watched Misery, and what jumped off the screen at you today? I watched Misery the last time. I think it might have been like four years ago for Halloween. Like, we were just surfing for those kinds of flicks. So, um, (laughs) this time was different. Um, (laughs) We bit. I got to tell you, man, like we are like at this new thing where when we watch movies as parents, um, it changes a little bit when things are like, cause you know, this Wilk, movie, even this one, like Annie Wilkes is like, you know, a shitty nurse who like where babies die. Like it's even now you're like, oh, you know, what's funny. It, every time I watch this movie, which is fairly regularly, <laughs> I said that again to my wife today. I was like, I always forget she's a baby murderer. <laughs> Yeah. Like they just like, so brush over that. Like if you if you get a text and look down, you don't realize that she's a baby murderer. So it starts with that and I was like, "Oh, or, or, well, no, it doesn't start like that. Sorry." Um it starts there where I um where Andre and I were watching and I was just like, "Oh god, I totally forgot." Yeah, Cuz I was like, "I forgot this." And it's horrible. Um <laughs> but then I guess like my other thing watching this movie is um always and i don't know why it's too like it's it's embarrassing i 100 percent always forget that rob reiner directed this movie without fail every I have, time i have Which no idea why because when you focus on it this movie is really funny yeah it's a really funny movie for large chunks of it well but yeah i always forget that too it just doesn't feel yeah, like it's oddly it's this weird mix of stephen king and Rob Reiner and James Kahn feels like a weird casting, although right. he's really, really good at the comedy of this role. Well, he's like he's so sure. I mean, he's good at the comedy. He's great at being terrified. It's really interesting. Like James Kahn is a guy who's literally built his career on being like the tough guy. He's tough guy. so yeah. fucking he's so good at being like just terrified, like the tension and yeah. all that shit. But again, it is like this weird movie of uh it's just like such a strange movie for Rob Reiner to have done. And I don't know, like I'm sure there's a story as to why he ended up being the director of the movie. But like, if you think about like Rob Reiner's biggest movies are like, this is spinal tap and fucking when Harry met Sally and a few good crushes this out of the park and a few good men. And this is amazing too. Like, yeah, he he has no business making a movie like this and yet he makes it. And it's so good. Um, crushes i mean we were talking about this earlier 
this feels like one of those movies that we're going to get a remake of pretty soon. Probably. Uh, I am not as anti-horror movie remake as most people. Um, but this one feels like, and especially Stephen King movies, because most of his adaptations were not great. Yeah. Uh, this one feels like it will be the one that I would not, like if I was a director and they're like, you can do a Stephen King movie. I'd be like, yes. And they're like, you can do Misery. I'd be no. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, to, to recapture the magic of Kathy Bates in this movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know who comes next that doesn't just try to do. Well, so that's like Kathy crazy... Bates impression. Like that, she is so iconic in this movie. Right. Oh, I, I mean, well, that's I, I think she is the, too, the is thing, like, obviously. That, like Annie Wilkes casting is so key for this. And so like the three times I know people have played this part um, is obviously Kathy Bates. Um, Lizzie Kaplan played Annie Wilkes in the Castle Rock series. It's on Hulu Castle right Rock. Now. Yeah. And then um, the only and again, I you were talking about this and I you're right. I'm shocked this has not been remade at this point, which is amazing to me. Yeah. But they did bring it to stage, which is something we'll get to, because I do think this movie feels very much like a play at a lot of times. Shot like a play, feels like a play, written like a play. This uh, was put on Broadway, I think, for a limited run with Bruce Willis as Paul Sheldon and uh, Laurie <laughs> Met. The only other woman who could do this besides uh, Kathy Bates, Laurie Metcalf, who, if you've seen like Lady I mean, Bird, there are plenty of actresses that could, but it's just hard. Once Laurie someone Met- comes in, I mean, I it's just, tell it's, you, man. but there, there are so many roles where it's someone is so iconic for one role, right? The thought of being the next person into that breach. I mean, it's like I watched Lizzie Kaplan on Castle Rock. I'm like, it's fine. It's not nearly as good. Right. And she's too attractive. Well, yeah, that's you know the thing. It's like, like I they're mean, just big problems the, with the, that. The, the, the remake of this movie is end up going to be like fucking Annie Wilkes is like Margot Robbie or something like that. I'm like, nope. Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> Knowing that I mean, honestly, with- if I think if they remake it, I think if you remade this movie today, the movie you have to make is some young female of color right getting an opportunity to make like a fan film and a fucking giant loser fanboy captures her yeah definitely because there is maybe no film of stephen king's or story that has gotten better with age than misery yeah well i mean because annie wilk should just be named annie tweetbot you know what i mean like i mean she she is exactly twitter in real life annie congoer annie anything like annie wilkes (laughs) like is Annie Wilkes is like that story that all great, like famous writers like read and they're like, holy fuck, dude, there's I, I'm like literally an inch away from this. Like anybody who has like yeah, a successful series. She she is toxic fandom, right? Totally. And what she does great is you can see how much these things mean to her. Right. And that's it, it's a it's an earnest portrayal of how much these stories. I mean, me and you, we do a comic book podcast, the long box sessions. And we have a lot of these fandoms that mean way more to us than they probably should. Right. It's kind of something that's going to keep getting worse and worse with our generation. It's like my dad's generation. You're like, I got manly stuff to do and I can't read comics. And, you know, but like us, like we're going to grow up in a more like, yeah, like I'll be reading comics my whole life till I die. Right. And that's not weird anymore. I'll still be watching, you know, cartoon versions of DC shows when I'm 50. Probably that won't be strange anymore. So you're going to have people caring more deeply for longer and passing that on to their kids. So it becomes a family bonding thing. But what happens is, is when these things are so, so meaningful to people, like we saw this in a big, bad way with game of Thrones, right? People get so invested and it means so much and they start building their lives and socialness around it. And this is the defining good thing in their life. And then what happens is the creator or writer, their mind veers off from you. And it is a weird thing where, like, you honestly might think about it more. Like, we might, we probably think about Star Wars more than George Lucas does. Oh, yeah. 100%. And so, this is where the line gets blurred of. I've always heard, I can't remember who has the famous quote, right? But it's like, once I write it and give it to the reader, it's theirs now. It's their story. Right. That's all fine in theory until you start getting paid to keep writing sequels and adding to it. And people get mad, man. J.K. Rowling, people are mad about Johnny Depp and Grindelwald and all this fucking non like people get really really upset about this and i mean this movie says what if on a chance encounter 
you got locked in with the worst fan you ever right. had. <laughs> well, and that's like what's interesting about misery versus like the examples you're giving are very much the examples you're giving other than like George was like a great one is like JK Rowling and like the Johnny Depp thing. Like what's fascinating is that is about like the upstream of this media to another medium altogether. Mm-hmm. This is literally about like what this is literally about the worst fan who thinks they're the best fan loving something so much. And then like being kind of unstable on top of that, reading something right. they don't like that you did. Like this is like George R. R. Martin driving through Arizona or New Mexico, wherever he lives, having a car accident. And he has like the manuscript for the next game of Thrones book. Someone reads and be like, this is, this is bullshit. Like, how could you do this to all these characters? Like, that's exactly yeah. what this is. So like, this is much less about like, I guess I can't like pepper. Like you can easily make the claim that it's like a toxic fandom movie. Like I would agree like halfway with that, but this really is about loving something so much, loving something too much that has like almost no consequence. Like that quote right there that you said is perfect, which is once I finish writing it, it's not mine anymore. Like if you're going to push it out into the world, it's going to like, cause like the other thing too is Paul Sheldon's character at the beginning of this movie is very much not interested in writing misery anymore. Like, that I think is probably yeah. the best part. That's the best part about this movie to me. And I mean, like, listen, we write stuff. Like, we've we've had things we've held on to. We had things we hold dear. I've written for other people things that I was a we're, huge fan of. We're the opposite, though. We're the guys that wish someone liked our stuff enough to get that. Right. I've been in the situation the where I've written. Problem. I've been in the situation where I've written stuff that because you know I wrote those Deer Hunter comics. Like Deer Hunter uh, is a band. People love that band. Like the people are obsessive with that band sometimes i wrote some of those comics and right. i've read reviews on on some of them people are like not my flavor i wouldn't i wouldn't have done this i wouldn't have liked that. i'm like oh god what if i get like what if i get sure. like fucking waylaid somewhere and get misery because someone read a fucking comic book i wrote like that's right like the fear but this is this is what happens though is that once you give it out to people right, right. so someone like annie who has the we just know she's kind of a lonely woman who lost her husband right for a big chunk of the movie Right. Something's obviously not right with her, but, you know, she could be a do-gooder. Sure. Fine. Um, What happens, though, right, is that when you are someone's fix, right, you give them their reason for getting up in the morning, the thing that defined them, and this is what's changed and where I think Misery has a chance to be a really cool remake, is when we were kids – when I liked Star Wars as a kid, that was something like me and my friends tried to keep on the DL. Like we did that in like our shadowy corner of the bus because you would still get made fun of and beat up for being those kind of kids. Right. Now that it's the mainstream and everyone likes, it's like, you know, you hear that a lot. Like I used to like punk rock when I was younger and people always liked bands until they got successful. Right. And I'm like, but they made like a great album and you're like, no, nah, it's too, it's played out now. People like it. It's lame. Yeah. I hate oh, yeah. it. And that's what, you when you become someone's fix but they can't feel ownership of it anymore right when right. i give it to the readers they become it's their story but once you realize i share that story with a lot of fucking people with a lot of varying backgrounds and opinions right that's why it's a toxic fandom story is because annie feels entitled to not only misery which has sold millions of copies we heard but to paul's very mind right the man who created it and gave her the thing she loves she goes you fucking cock. Yeah. Like she reads 300 plus pages of his book and loves it. And just because it's going to end, right. she hates him and puts him on this journey. Now that's questionable. You could say Annie maybe had nefarious intentions before she had been stalking him and shit at his hotel anyway. Sure. But, but she hadn't done anything yet. He'd been going there for a long time. Right. I mean, to me, the, the crux of the argument of like toxic fandom versus like what I think like, obsession is like obviously this movie is about obsession any kind of any kind of obsession like this is like if you look at in the context of today because at that point it's not about like changing anything like you said it's about ending like paul's deciding to end this story that means so much to annie so annie is upset that like you said she's not going to get her fix anymore so i think really where it boils really what it boils down to is that the inverse of that quote which is like it's theirs but the problem is, is it's theirs to the point where they can't imagine anyone else doing it. Like anyone else could pick up a pen. Like, like, you know, if he wanted to kill off misery, they easily could have just got someone of ghost right for him. And that would be the Paul Sheldon series for the rest of his life. Could have made his money, blah, blah, blah. 
but the point of the de- the point of it is he wanted to kill off that character. He wanted to kill off everything about right. it. He w- didn't want to have to. He didn't want to have that monkey on his back anymore. Which, again, if you know anything about Stephen King, you know that misery is a metaphor for his own personal issues. I think this one was uh, was this cocaine. Yeah, right. Eddie Wilkes is just a giant bag of drugs. No, no, that's for yeah, real. Yeah, no, I mean, that's all. No, I, I understand. But I, that's I've what read I'm Stephen like, King's memoir and shit. Right. Like, I get it. So, like, imagine what the I'm saying is, is I think it, but this is the thing, right? That's how Stephen King wrote it. Now that it's hit our world, I think it is mutating and taking on this greater meaning. Sure. Because we honestly see Annie Wilkes everywhere. Right. You can imagine there are guys that, if they could get Ryan Johnson in their mom's basements, would torture him into saying that he hates the movie he made. Right. Right, which is the dumbest thing I still see people argue about online all the time is that he hates Star Wars and he wanted to ruin Last Jedi. Like, instead of just saying, here's a guy who tried something and it wasn't everyone's cup of tea, they think he actively was out to destroy the thing they loved. And I'm telling you right now, there are people in this world that would Annie Wilkes him if they could. And that is fucking scary. Right. And I think this was something that was a little bit before its time because this. This movie plays closer to kind of a, what is it, Basic Instinct, right? The Glenn Close movie? No, that's Fatal Attraction. That's what you're talking about. Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction, right. Where it's just like an obsessive state, right? Yeah. This kind of ownership over another person's body and whatever. Mm -hmm. But that extra element of her saying, no, you will redo the work, bringing his pages in and being like, Paul, you're better than this. That sucks. (laughs) That's such a shitty scene, but it just feels so prescient to our world today. That I think that's what's cool is the the movie and the book have become this kind of ever evolving story that are more. And that's what makes Misery probably a prime remake target is that that would be so in the same way the Invisible Man took on these kind of themes of, you know, men harassing women and this and that. It became really perfect for this time and it made the themes of horror extra intense. Yeah. I think this is the exact same way. <laughs> I think that scene, that scene particularly, like where she comes in and says, you're better than this and literally like fucking throws the page. Like this is that scene where she likes, yeah. uh, the, she write the, like the manuscript on fire. I can't, I can never remember if it's the manuscript or the, the new, when pages. she makes him light, write uh, yeah, his, sorry. Uh, his she makes him light the original manuscript. manuscript. It was like his fire. life. Yeah. So she's like, these are like that scene alone where she's like, these, this is shit. That is the toxic fandom right there. Like that to me is like, like I think about the like the fucking fucking knock on the chin Tom King had to take for like uh, Batman. Like he wrote Batman for a long time, and people absolutely hated his run. Some people loved it. Some people thought it was total shit. But like that's exactly what it is. It's like, well, what can you do better? And this is like Annie Wilkes' yeah. opportunity to step up and be like, well, I can do this better. Like I can be a better editor than whoever your editor is. That, in a nutshell, is like <laughs> fandom taking over and being like well, you've said I should step up to the plate, so here I am. It's like, yeah, but you're not actually doing the work. You're just saying what's good or bad. Like, that to me is the – that to me is, like, the real trouble, and that's, like, the real fear of – that's the real fear that I think Paul has throughout the movie is not – you know, obviously there's a sense of mortality and so on and so forth, but to me the fear that Paul experiences is the fear of am I good for this? Am I right for this? Am I doing the right job? Like that to me is like the compounding fear. Like the base level is I'm going to die because this person's an insane person. But like the overwhelming like sense of like irony is that am I writing good enough for her? Like that is crazy when you think about it. I honestly think there's a part of him where Paul is intentionally just like, what is the dumbest fucking thing? Well, yeah, I mean, of course there's that. And that's what he's writing. You know what I mean? Well, and I think, I think what it becomes for him is the terrifying metaphor for Paul is he's like, this is why I killed that bitch in the first place. (laughs) Because (laughs) this is the exact life he was afraid of is being chained down and writing misery for the Annie's of the world. Right. Right? (laughs) You know, and I think that is what, You know, and he had this other story. He couldn't even come up with a name for it, but it was kind of a personal yarn to him. And she fucking makes him light it on fire. And you can just see this like anger. And so when he's like, you know, just write the dumbest shit ever. Right. There's probably a part of him that it almost becomes this. This is what you deserve. Right. You know, you've never been because he has these doubts of a writer, you know, that he's a bad writer and he's a sellout. And he's a hat. I think he even says that to his agent. Right. Lauren Bacall, where he's like, 
You know, I wasn't a writer the first time I cashed in on misery. And so there, there is this, there is this kind of a uh, Dante's Inferno aspect of Paul right. perhaps feeling a little bit like he deserves this because he keeps cashing in right. on mercy one too many times or misery. No mercy, all misery. <laughs> well, like, and that's, you think misery's baby was named mercy. Well, and that's like <laughs> sort of the thing that I think about, um, when it comes to the way the movie's like shot, for instance, mm. I um, it's it's so weird because like I think about because I didn't realize that Bruce Willis and Laurie Metcalf did a play version of this because like when I was watching the movie today, I was like, this feels like a play. Like anything that happens in the mm. room feels like a play, but the tension that builds and like the really scary shit is when he's like out of the room, going around the house, trying to like like when he like happens upon all her little trinkets and shit like that. That's where a lot of the tension ratchets up, but it's weird because it's like a ratcheting of tension. But at the same time, the scariest moments are when Kathy Bates like starts flying off the handle and it's not even she that he's in that fucking it's, unbelievable. It's, it's not even movie. that he's in that vulnerable, posi- vulnerable position of like, he's in the bed or he's in the wheelchair. He can't do anything. It's that yeah. he's so helpless. Like that's like the scariest yeah. part is he can't do any like when she gets pissed at him because she has to go back into town to get the the you know the paper that the that doesn't smudge or whatever, like that I think might be one of the scarier moments in the movie just because like you don't know what's gonna happen when you're dealing with someone who doesn't like he's trying to like be you know he's being coy and cute about it and be like hey I want you to be part of this process like it's important that you don't just be a fan you be part of this since you're a part of this now. And she fucking mm. loses her shit because yeah, that, and that's the part that I think is interesting about like what we're talking about with fandom is that fans don't realize what it is. Like you can bitch about the craft, the finished product all the live long day. But like when you are part of the process itself, you have no idea what's actually happening in the, the head of a writer. You have no idea what their needs really are. Like that is the real like scary part alone is that, no one understands until they're part of it. And when you're part of it, you realize, oh, wow, maybe I didn't want to be a part of this. I just wanted to have the final pieces of it myself. It's truly well, terrifying. And, and he's just writing a novel, right? Imagine right. a process like what Ryan Johnson went through Star Wars. Right. Do you think he really made every one of those decisions with no one checking him? And that's, I mean, no, none of these big movies that, of that size don't have a lot of cooks in the kitchen totally but he takes all the fucking shit right he takes you know, the fucking he licks all on the, the chin, shit man. forever and that's that's the hard and scary part to me what what annie represents in this movie is she becomes this almost bad trashy walmart novel character right where she is this unfinished human being right where you can just like the scene that really struck me is when he rolls out and picks up her telephone and there's nothing inside of it it's hollow right and you're you start to realize, oh, my God, that's her. Like, she never is expecting a call. She never wants to reach the outside world. Right. The only time we see her in the outside world, she's screaming at other people in rage, right? right. So there is this reclusive loner afraid to be a part of something. And misery is her bridge, right? right? And that that is what becomes really scary about Annie is halfway through the – maybe a little even before halfway through, she begins to become kind of this unfinished golem, right? Like she's just this hollow thing that is here to punish him, right? For kind of things that he already was worried about himself, right? She takes on this really scary shape where she just will appear and nothing ever feels genuine with her the whole movie, right? Right? Like she does this cock-a-doody, you know, oh, geez, golly. Like, you know, just saying stuff like that while doing horrendous deeds well right like what there are two moments i thought about a lot right what if he says you can't read the manuscript right and he's like sorry that is my rule right and as a fan do i think she would respect that maybe right if she doesn't let him read it and he's just like oh it's the next mercy and what if misery the mercy book hadn't come out right misery what did i i keep saying mercy from overwatch misery yeah, there's no mercy in this movie. Literally none. <laughs> so, but that's what those two moments struck me, right? That's where it kind of adds a supernatural vibe that all of this is happening in perfect unison, right? As the blizzard hits, as he has the manuscript, as his book comes out, it does have this kind of Dante's Inferno vibe at that point. 
Right. So it's, what if he says you can't read the manuscript? And he's just like, yeah, of course I'm going to work on a new Mercy book. And he just lies to her. Misery. <laughs> Misery. Fuck. Why do I keep doing that? Misery. If Misery. he says. Misery. If he, well, I mean, obviously in the context of the story, I'd say he, I mean, you know. Because it's well, the story. I, I get that it's a really boring story if these things don't happen. I'm saying, but here's, but like, on but some no, 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 level, but what it says you. for no, Paul no, is that he though. is desperate right. for her but, to read that. Right. right, you're onto something though. So like, when you think about it, it restructures the story then as it being okay. Like to use the Ryan Johnson metaphor. If Ryan Johnson was in a movie theater and he was holding the script and someone was like, hey, can I read that? And he goes, no, of course not. Like, besides the legality of it all, he goes, no, I'm, re- I'm working on this. Like, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> the story then becomes less about um, Paul's experience, like, having to deal with, like, the worst parts of fandom. And much more yeah. about having to deal with Maybe like the psychology of like having to keep that like because like if someone's excited to see a thing that you're doing, like you do have a little bit of an ego about it. You're like, oh, I could like it'd be nice to get a little charge out of that. You know, that's like yeah. the fear, though. Like, I think the fear is almost and she is that, buttering him up. Right. Of course. So like there's a little bit of an ego stroke there. You're going to hand over your work. And then if they don't like it, that's the when the real real then the real fear sets in because it's like holy shit this person's an insane person and she hates my book then on top of that this person reads my all my books the fear is that i've written something like even though what i think is shit is already shit i've written something that is even shittier than shit so my fear is that oh my god am i a fraud to begin with like the psychology of paul sheldon starts breaking down and really what this ends up being is like you know that scene where she's like looking out the window and She's about to cry. She's got a gun and all that stuff. Like she's, she's, she's like, oh, you're gonna leave soon. It's almost over. Blah blah blah. She's like looking yeah. out the window. Yeah. Then that whole movie becomes about Paul just staring out the window, like, I'm a fraud. I'm fake. I'm nothing. Like, but that's that is the scary stuff that Annie does. Is she slips? Right. But why I think it becomes extra scary is because Paul's slipping with her. Like right. the scene that struck me was, I don't think there's any way he lights that manuscript on fire if he thinks it's a good book. I don't think there's any way it's untitled when he finishes it if he thinks it's a good book. Right. Because she's throwing the lighter fluid on him, right? And she's always taunting him with physical harm and oftentimes doing physical harm. But I think there is a part of him that knows she's not going to light him on fire. He is her play toy. He is the thing that is filling the exact same role as misery in her life now, right? And not like a misery pig, but a misery human, a a misery man that I can have to play with every day. If she burns him, that's over, right? Like on some level, I mean, you could say later, like obviously once we start hobbling and things of that nature, uh, she's pretty willy nilly with the lower half of the body. Right. You know, she's a cock a duty mad woman, as it were. I'll say this. I think I think a part of him is not fighting as hard as he would. Probably not. If he was proud of what he wrote. So I think that. that plays into this kind of this kind of uh you know purgatory feel where it's like, fuck, I deserve this. Sure. I'm a fraud. And now I've been caught by my sins of, you know, Midwestern forty year old women. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this about okay, I want to talk about the hobbling thing because like there's not really much to speak of. It's horrifying uh, and terrible. We've watched how many I movies? mean it's one of the most iconic scenes in horror movie history. We've watched how many movies on this show? Like over 150 at this point, right? Over 150. We're closing over, in on 200. We're closing in on 200 episodes. I've watched a guy fuck pig guts. I've watched, uh, yeah. you know, I, I've seen Woo. horrifying things. To this day, I still will not watch that entire scene. I can't. Oh, no. This is. This is well, I told you I scroll through Facebook occasionally and they'll put like, oh, teenager breaks their leg shit. And if I see it, it will haunt me for weeks where like I feel phantom pains and like it. I'm afraid to watch yeah. like it really sticks with me. I when I know this scene's coming, I get to the point where I feel like I'm going to explode like a balloon and I turn my head away. Yeah, I won't, <laughs> every time I still won't watch it. Like it's still one of those things. It's just I've I've blown out both my knees. I know what I know what like lower half of your body pain feels like. It's horrible. Yeah. 
That I cannot Wait, imagine. I'm telling you, but that's the power of this scene. The moment she puts that block between his legs, you're like, I'm already done. Like you've yeah, already gotten me. I will be scarred for the rest of my days. I, but it's so rare that a horror movie scene gets you once and you're like, I'm too afraid to watch that yeah. ever for the rest of my life. Again, I've I've watched And that's the thing, it's, so it's, many it's not even extra gory, it's just Yeah, it's so repulsive of an act. You know it's what I mean? Just There's so... gorier things and nasty but like ugh. To me, that is bottom of the barrel, like grossest things I don't want to see. <laughs> yeah, like that's like the one of those things where I'm like, it's just, and it also, again, I've never, ever since the first time I saw this movie, I've never rewatched this scene ever. Like, yeah, I cannot do it. I'm it's with you just, on that. It's a physical impossibility. Which is weird because, uh, you know what got me today, like the hobbling, is when she's just like, yeah, I was moving your legs around. I could hear bones grinding. Like she set his legs. Yeah. And I was like trying to explain that to him. I was like, oh my God. It's. Oh, but that, I mean, this gets into a. She's so. It adds to the terror of Annie Wilkes, though, is how she spends the whole movie. You know, she she is half this Mayberry character, right? Oh, golly, G, G golly, Willikers. Right. She's half this dime store novel romance heroine, right? The. Oh, yeah. Paul. And then when you see it start to slide, right? And she is this hollow, joyless, angry person. And so her total lack of respect for his body and mind, while she constantly is talking about the love she has for him, is like, it's just, it's, and that's the weird thing. I don't know that many people would agree with me, but it felt very casual and how she just disrespects him. Well, I mean, it's right? it's superficial, you know. Like it's not something. It's in, like it's she so says this. Um, it's scary though. Well, because she says it uh, in the scene where she's watching the rain and she's clearly like actually depressed. But she says that she's like, you know, I, I I loved your writing. I didn't know who you were yet. Like that kind of thing. Like she's trying to justify this sort of like falsity of deepness to herself. When we all know, this is just someone who's in love with the words on a page like she doesn't really love the real person because she doesn't know the real person this person's been her fucking captor or captive yeah. like that's the entire and now she hates two of his two of his books right yeah so if he wrote 10 books i think they said in the movie she hates two of them enough to destroy him <laughs> that's really shitty it is i mean that's like i think the but no what it's oh man but what really gets me about kathy bates is the scene you said it too. The scene when she walks in and she's the hollow version of Annie. But there is this version where you just imagine that's her talking to like Hollywood. Yeah. Where she's like, you know, a guy like you, you'll never know what it's like for a person like me to worry about losing you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not a Hollywood type, I think is what she says. And there is this moment where you just see this, this actress that so perfectly finds the emotional subtext to get you to a place in a role, right? Like she's not talking about actually like losing this man, but there's so much else going on. And what Kathy Bates is saying in that moment that, it, I mean, it's, it's a breathtaking scene, Yeah. but that's what she channels so well in this is that cause it, it's, it is weird because it does play like the tra It has the trashy novel effect. Where it is just like the she's so over the top at times with the the G golly stuff, yeah. But it never feels that way, right? Like it never feels false acting, right? No, it feels like it's coming from an organic psychosis. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's yeah. Like, there's nothing about the way she is as a person. Like, I don't think that the, that particular thing is false. It's uh, I don't know. It, it's it's the emotion. It's not those emotions that feel false it's her that feels false like i don't know if i'm ex I, I, right. I'm, not, I'm not explaining this correctly like well no she she is like what we see when she's working on misery with paul she is writing herself as a bad right novel yeah she right she's trying to write is, this version of annie wilkes that can forget that she's a wife a nurse a baby murderer possibly a husband murderer yeah you know what i mean <laughs> she's just fucked up like I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the version. I mean, really what it is when you think about it, it ultimately it's about what all great art is, which is, I mean, not all great art, but some of it's different, but escapism is a really big deal. Like 
I think about like my parents, for instance, go to the movies to see escapist fantasies. Like that's why people go see Marvel movies. People don't want to remember like, you know, I don't go, you know, when I'm serving, when when I'm serving for something to watch, I'm not going to go, Oh sweet. Zero dark 30. Just what I needed. A harrowing account of <laughs> harrowing account of post nine eleven. I really want to get into how much geopolitics is getting sticky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, good, Parks and Rec. Like, those are the kinds of things. Like, right. you want something that's escapist. So when you find out, yes, I think like when you think about Annie Wilkes's issues, it's when you find out that the fantasy is when you find out that the escape is not is less than ideal. Like. When you meet Paul Sheldon, she's expecting the same escapist fantasy she has from reading Misery. So when you realize that the real person is much less ideal than you think, I think that's when the mirror starts to crack a little bit. And He's the foul mouth street kid from the manuscript. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's No, I mean, I, that is that but that's the scary thing of our age is the the fear of the people who are guides to escapist fantasies and our ungratefulness to where we want to destroy them because it's not exactly as we had in our right. mind uh is really is very prescient for today man and that it is like just imagine those release the snyder cut guys that still talk about that shit. i just saw so you tell me one of, up again you're telling today. me one of them doesn't have a ceramic penguin they use to like know their hostages are moving around i just saw another one Horrifying. of those today. like it popped up on twitter like finally we're gonna get it and i'm like dude give it a fucking rest man like that yeah. that see that see that's the thing but like, that's that's the problem is that in and annie says that right there's so little joy in the world right and I think that when someone finds something that works for them and what happens is that all of this stuff, it's the same thing with jug, drugs, man. Anyone has ever like been a drug user, the same amount doesn't work as you keep going, man. You can't get high on, you don't have the same high ever, right? Like I heard someone describe it once as that the problem with drugs is that we're always chasing that first high we had, right? The first time we did it and it fixed everything, we felt golden and amazing. And I can speak from some experience, there's some truth to that. And that's what what becomes scary for all of them, right? Yeah. Uh, I will say this though on this viewing, uh, James Khan is hysterical in this movie. Yeah, he has a Sopranos like quality to him with his uh, retorts, like when he's talking about her house, and he's like, "So did you go to a decorating school, or was this just natural talent?" <laughs> like his little cutting interludes to her are so fucking funny in this movie it did have a real like, i was honestly very impressed with his his comedic it did have like movie. a real like sopranos vibe it's funny that you should say that because immediately yeah. after i watched this movie i sent you a clip of the sopranos like one of my all-time favorite Polly walnuts moments <laughs> Polly walnuts yeah. where, where a waiter like a waiter like starts having like a fit in a parking lot after they punch him and <laughs> Polly walnuts see he's fucked up like it's he's com- fucked up, Chris, because they, they hit him in the head and he's like shaking and he's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> but that's but that's what oh, it is. Polly. Like James Conn has so many of these great little one liners that do like kind of belong in this like smarmy Italian guy from uh, The Sopranos. It totally works that way. Like who's not even Italian. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's just it's so funny because you can tell there's a bit of Paul that's eventually buying into the. The kind of bad fantasy that, yeah. like, she's writing. Totally. And it's really fun to watch him. I mean, he does some amazing body horror work in this movie, right? The, you know, crawling around the house and the struggle to do everything, right? To find the pills. It's just, oh, and when she dumps the wine, like, his reaction is just gut. And that's the thing. is like, she so, knew it was in there. Yeah. She fucking knew it was in there. And so, but there's just so much good kind of comedic, stuff that just takes you out for a second right. and then it, it almost makes it when because i'm one of those guys i don't love pressure cooker scenarios where people do anything to take me out and this movie does some of that where it's like let's go talk about the sultry sheriff and his old wife that constantly wants to bang right, right. and you're right. like they're funny and amazing and adorable but i don't know that that part was super necessary to me for this movie right, right. and uh you know his constant jokes and climbing around the house you're like i know he's not getting out yet like, you know, it's 42 minutes in. It's not that thrilling to right. me. But what it does is I think it just, this is the one movie where they do a really good job of when they release the pressure, 
it almost feels like it comes back heavier. Yeah. And a lot of movies just lose that to me, and then I'm uninvested. This movie skirts that really well. Right. I've, and these little comedic moments make it heavier when Annie can slip on a right. dime. Well, and I th- and it, like, it shocks you more. Right. And I feel like that has a lot to do with Rob Reiner, because Rob Reiner comes from a comedic yeah. background. So his directing yeah. style tends towards that. And really, yes. and we've talked about this on the show before, like the line between like comedy and horror are pretty, pretty, pretty blurred a lot of the time. So if you bring a guy whose sensibility is to cut and write and edit and direct based on co- based on comedic instincts, yet you're making a movie that's about ratcheting up the tension. I mean, that's really kind of what joke telling is like. You just like, you want to tell this ne- the next the best joke over like next best joke. Like that's what the whole thing is. So really Rob Reiner is the perfect choice for this kind of movie because he's not trying to get the next scare. He's trying to get the next like laugh essentially. And the next laugh is the, the building of the tension over and over again until it lets out. Like that's like kind of like, it's almost like it. it, it, Yeah. It's a buildup. And then it's a James Conn using that comedy humanizes a guy that we shouldn't feel that bad for. Right. Exactly. Really. Because again, American audiences have a really hard time with here's a rich guy who has it made and now he's suffering. Let's feel like Americans have a lot in movies. I feel like. Right. We see wealth as like a sign of a character flaw in movies, which is strange because our entire society is set up to be, you know, wealth craving, you know, monsters. Right. (laughs) But in movies, we love seeing rich people get punished. Right. So I think by James Caan writing the manuscript of, oh, as a slum kid, oh, here's this comedy. He's so charming that then you're like, oh, I do feel bad when he gets hobbled. Right. <laughs> I mean, granted, you should feel bad anyways. But you can imagine. I mean, you see it online all the time when a celebrity is like, oh, I, you know, I'm having like a bad day. Like I have, you know, I'm depressed. And people are like, fuck you, you're rich. Right. And it's like that vitriol is real. And I think maybe that that kind of charming nature of him is what helps keep that tension because we don't want to see him be destroyed that much, man. Sure. It's it's very strange. I will say this. I was reminded today that when that sheriff gets shot is one of the most angry I get watching a movie. <laughs> it so pisses me off because I love that character so much. He's just this very sweet, charming old guy. And him and his wife's relationship is so adorable. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I just so hope that's your marriage when you get that age. And the thing that killed me is the indignity. Well, one, I was like, he was not following search warrant protocol, I feel like. But <laughs> when she fucking shoots him, we don't even go back to see his lifeless body and no. we never see the widow. We don't care. Yeah. The hilarious, spicy old lady. We never see them again. And it pissed me the fuck off. I wanted to see... I, I wanted him to have a, a better, more righteous uh, death. Yeah, you know. It really pissed me off today. I was shocked how mad I was about it. That's always one of those. Shocked. Like, that's always one of those out of nowhere ones. But you know what's happening because it's not- I assumed it wasn't going to go well, but I was like, she has knockout syringes. Maybe just put him to sleep. He's old and then he can wake up. Oh, is it over? All right. I'm going back home. My wife, you know, it's finger Wednesday. Or whatever. You know, I just do like a little, you know, oh, old people still finger. That's weird. Like, do a joke, you know, get in there. God. I was so sad. So sad. I don't know. There's spite. I mean, she's trying to get after him on the snowy roads. True. You don't know what they're still getting up to. I I don't know. But yeah, that that really struck me. I'll tell you the scene that I loved more than any today is when he's finishing the book and he fucking. Because I thought he was going to spray her with the thing, right? The first time I saw, like, obviously, like, he'll spray her and light her on fire. Yeah. But he lights the fucking final chapter on, right? So he's made her read all these other pages of this shitty book that she wants. And he's like, hey, you remember when everyone wanted to know about Misery's father and all these fan theories, right? Which is another thing that we drown in nowadays. He's like, it's all in here. Fuck you! And he lights it. it on fire. It's so great. It, it, was, it reminded me of the moment, like, I wish we had never found out who Ray's parents were, right? Like, yeah. I love the the notion of, like, oh, you guys are so invested in this fan theory. Burn it down, right? And him lighting that chapter on fire. I was like, there are so many storytellers in today's world that would, like, that material, that scene could probably be jerk-off worthy. <laughs> Just lighting it on fire is the, the, the toxic fans like, no! How often do you think Zack Snyder actually watches that scene and just masturbates furiously because he knows that's what it is? Yeah. Yeah, Snyder cut. Yeah, yeah, I think I think he's the opposite. 
Oh, really? Right? That's the opposite of the Snyder cut, right? Shit. Zack Snyder's the one trying to, like, put the novel back together. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, <laughs> no, it was mine. It was my cut. No, yeah. It's probably, it's definitely more of a J.J. Abrams thing, especially at the end. They made him do, they, right. they, made, oh, man. they made him own up. That scene cracked me the fuck up because it's it. also, it's so funny because he had to get that extra fuck you in to her in misery. Yeah. Because, you know, he could, like, he knows she has a gun. Yeah. Like, that's not the best attack plan, but he just wanted to make that I mean, I think at that point, he was, like, resolved. Real bad? He was like, I'm not getting out of here. So I'm going to fucking, I'm going to win, though. Like, I think that's the thing about those kinds of movies is, like. That was cool. By the time you get to the end of the third act, like, it's not about surviving. It's about getting the moral victory. Yeah. And that's, and that's, it's a fun for us, too, because we kind of know how this has to play out in a lot of these movies. And if you're not going to really twist a, like, get us with, like, a clever twist, that's a really fun moment for Paul. It's this really cathartic moment after this excruciating journey we've been right. on. And granted, the fight scene is just nasty. It's like, it's like a down and dirty fight scene, which I yeah. love. It's cool. I mean, again, like. It's just like, I even love this shot at the end when he smashes her fucking face with the pig. Oh and it's like the weight of his own fan is crushing upon him. I was like, yes, I am down for this toxic fandom viewing. That I'm I, I forgot that movie. he, I forgot the part where he like jams the ashy pages in her mouth. I'm like, oh God. Oh my God. I Dude, I'm telling that. you this. There's probably very little chance that me and Ryan Johnson will ever cross paths. But if we don't, like. Seriously, do you J.O. to misery all the time? <laughs> like, you get home and you're like, what a hard day at the office. You put some petroleum jelly on, light a Yankee candle, and just start stroking it to misery? Because I would. That's the first, that's Seriously. just the last 10 Eat minutes. it, you fucking fat pig, till you choke on it. Oh, raise the Palpatine, choke on it, bitch. <laughs> if I was Ryan Johnson, I would, that would be my life every day. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I would live stream it, too. <laughs> To every fucking person on Twitter that's uh, I hate the Last Jedi, I'm like, hey, come live stream me joing to like the page sn- smashing scene. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, yo, George Lucas too. I bet there's a whole group of them that have eyes wide shut jo sessions to this movie. <laughs> I don't know. I'm telling you, if they remake this, that's the angle they're gonna take, and I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely, I love it, man. I don't know. I, I what I think to wrap this up, man. I just this movie is so funny because this is another one of those like me and my mom love to watch this movie together, and it, it feels like that kind of like it's very predictable, kind of trashy lifetime thriller. Yeah, but there's so many small elements that elevate it to this unforgettable experience. Me and I, I actually will say. A lot of people, I, I was clued into this about three years ago, but Lifetime has some really good movies, actually. <laughs> so I'm not taking a shot across the bow, but that kind of thing, when we yeah. grew up, that was more of a joke. Absolutely. But it's we know what's going to happen so often, but like you said, there is still this enormous tension. Uh, the comedy never feels like it's taking place of the drama. It's nope. just this perfect you know, uh, greasing of the narrative as we flow through. The characters are all really charming, and you fall in love with them a lot. Even Annie was. Uh, except for Annie. Annie, not good. Yeah. You kind of do feel a little bad for her. Like, you could own. That's the question is you have to ask yourself which version of Annie do you think is closest to true? I think by the time they get to the baby murdering yearbook that she clipped out herself and saved, you're like, probably pretty bad. <laughs> pretty, pretty bad guy. Yeah, anyone who's going to keep that memory has got problems. Yeah, but I, I think it's that's why I think this movie's so enduring, right? Is besides Kathy Bates is, you know, like a Mount Rushmore of scary women, yeah. right? Like this is one of the best performances. But it's just even her, in her madness, there is this really relatable, you know, not being invited to the party aspect that I think a lot of people relate to. And this movie has grown and evolved with us in the way that when these stories are taken for more than what they are, which is, you know, time passing stories, like chance for us to sit and ponder our own lives and reflect on the world and reality and humanity. And once they get to that point where we're willing to actually dehumanize and hurt people by them, I mean, there's a lot of fear to plow through in this movie. And I think it, it really is just a perfectly streamlined version of this story. Yes. It's excellent. 
It's really hard. I, I mean, I think the remake is prime for today's world, but I would not be the one who wanted to follow this up. No, but it's it's coming. I feel it. Yeah, I mean, it's all going to happen. And that's the thing. Remakes are going to happen. You just hope that they're good. Yeah. Right? Like, if they're really good, no one's going to get mad. Yeah. You just have to hope <laughs> for the best, especially with that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know. This this felt very lightning in a bottle, right? The same way that his Mustang had to go off the road right at the same time as his stalker, who was strong enough to carry him all the way back through the blizzard, you know, and just had all the right training, right? The way it feels very, again, predetermined. Uh, I think that's what happened with this movie. It was just this perfect mix of a comedy director who made a really, really good horror movie and great casting. Uh, and it is just getting better with age, man. I love Misery. I could watch this fucking movie once a week. I love Misery. Excellent flick. That's it, guys, for Misery, not Mercy, Misery. I hope you guys loved it as much as we did. Um, yeah, anytime you get to spend in uh, Kathy's house, you should do that. She is phenomenal. Uh, I mean, we should just do a Kathy Bates month one week, month. We'll do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's it, guys, for this week's episode. Uh, the pod will continue to be held captive uh, for the rest of the month. We've got some really good choices. Uh, Black Snake Moan. We've got Knock Knock with Keanu Reeves. We've got uh, this indie movie, Compliance, which is fascinating and based on a real story. Mm-hmm. And The Manchurian Candidate. So we got some really good movies coming up to wrap up this month where the pod is held hostage. Uh, as always, we're on all the same social media as you. Get at us with people you'd like to hear on the show, movies you'd like to hear us talk about, themes, double features, any of that good stuff. We uh, love to hear that. Please leave us a rating and review uh, wherever you find the show, especially Apple Podcast app. Find us on YouTube at The Nerd Alchemist. Uh, And you can email the show, filmalchemistpod at gmail.com. For The Film Alchemist, I'm Josh Griffey. I'm Alex Dandino. 